You're listening to The Path Forward Dayton, a Dayton Daily News podcast where we discuss the most pressing issues facing our region and seek solutions. I'm your host, Community Impact Editor Nick Herkman. Today's podcast is a recording of the community conversation we held on Wednesday, June 29th, on the topic of how historically high inflation is affecting our region. Good afternoon, everyone. Thank you for joining us for today's community conversation. The topic uh, this month is going to be on how historically high inflation affects you and your family and the greater Dayton region. I'm Nick Herkman, the community impact editor for the Dayton Daily News. I'm joined today with my co-host, Lynn Holsey. Lynn, do you mind giving a quick introduction? Hi, I'm Lynn Halsey. I'm a reporter at the Dayton Daily News. I focus on jobs and the economy. I do investigations. Um, some politics, but uh, mostly business writing. Thank you, Lynn. Community conversations are a series of moderated panel discussions that we have on topics that are critically important to our communities. Obviously, everyone is feeling kind of the pinch of inflation and and the economy can be kind of a, a wild card at the moment. So we're hoping that the panelists we've invited today kind of illuminate and shed some light on some of the, the difficult questions that everyone's asking and trying to figure out for themselves. So uh, I'm gonna jump into introductions of our panelists right now. So if you don't mind going, uh, Doug Kinsey, could you give a quick introduction? Certainly, I'm Doug Kinsey. I'm a founding partner of a fee-only independent uh, financial planning and investment firm based in Dayton. Um, and I've been a practicing certified financial planner for 23 years. Thank you, Doug. Pat Keeley, could you go next? Sure. Pat Keeley, uh, Director of CNI Sales for IGS Energy. Uh, we're a uh, natural gas and electricity supplier based out of Dublin, Ohio, with an office here in Dayton as well. Thank you, Pat. Chris Peruso, could you go next? Yes, good afternoon. Chris Peruso with uh, NFIB, National Federation of Independent Business. We represent uh, independently held for-profit businesses, have about 21,000 members uh, in the great state of Ohio. Uh, we do have a, a presence in all 50 state capitals, and our typical member employs 15 or fewer and does less than $2 million in gross receipts. Thank you, Chris. Jeff Heyman, could you go next? Sure. I'm Jeff Heyman, professor of economics and the dean of the School of Business Administration here at Cedarville University right outside of Dayton. Thank you, Jeff. Michael, could you go next? Thanks, Nick. I'm Michael Shields. I'm a researcher with Policy Matters Ohio. We are a research and policy organization focused on building an Ohio economy where everybody can thrive. And, and my job there is uh, to do research on the labor market and job quality. I appreciate it. Thank you all for joining us today. We appreciate your time, your expertise, and hopefully the discussion to come on a very important topic for our audiences. So I'm going to jump straight into questioning. Uh, Lynn, do you want to handle the first one? You're muted. Did it again. Um, Jeff, how should we view the current rate of inflation? Is it cause for alarm? Is this something we've seen before? What's your take on that? Well, I, I don't think you need any of us panelists to tell our, our viewing audience that uh, this is a high rate of inflation that causes a lot of pain. They're alarmed whether we say they ought to be alarmed or not is the bottom line. I mean, households are just strained to, uh, to face the budgetary pressures they have as as in many cases, while some workers have had raises that have been uh, higher than this rate of inflation, many have not. Uh, so, so if you want to think about it historically, 
uh, you, you'll often hear some of the reports that, uh, that this rate is, is the highest since you know, the, the 1970s. But one of the problems with that is they changed the methodology from the 1970s. Uh, some of the people that look at that uh, show that if our rate of inflation actually would be much more in line with some of the peaks of the inflation during that time. Now, now I'm not here to tell our, our viewers that, that, that the methodology back then was better. In fact, I think today's is better than back then. But the point is the pain that, that was experienced in the late 1970s isn't very much akin to the kind of pain that our, our viewers are hearing and feeling today. Thank you, Jeff. Did anyone else want to weigh in on kind of the, the narrative around inflation, how things are going right now, and, and perhaps a historical perspective? That's okay if not. I do kind of want to jump to Pat. Or I'm sorry, Doug, did you want to go? Um, I would just say that, uh, uh, you know, in, in the years that I've been practicing as a financial planner, um, we really haven't had to pay much attention to inflation until now. Um, you know, it's been a fairly benign rate of inflation for a few decades at around 2.3, 2.4% or so all in. And now suddenly we're looking at, you know, eight plus percent. Um, I've written a couple articles for Kiplinger on this subject. And most recently I wrote an article uh, addressing how does it affect individual consumers in their budgets? Um, so I, I took the BLS information and plugged it into a spreadsheet and just pulled out more commonly used budget items so people could you know compare what they were spending last year or maybe what they'd be spending this year and develop an overall percentage rate of inflation and you know it's when you read the headline number um you only see one number usually like oh it's eight percent or eight and a half percent or whatever but it doesn't really maybe affect everybody the same way I mean, there are components of it that do, like gasoline, energy costs, and food. Um, but depending on how elastic somebody's budget is, you know, whether they are, uh, you tend to see at the lower end of the income spectrum, um, people with less discretionary income. I mean, they're they're spending more of what they make after tax on things they have to spend it on. Um, people at the upper income levels maybe have a lot more discretionary income to spend on other things easier for them to cut back or decide where they're going to spend money or not. So I thought it was pretty revealing just to look at those different categories and uh, we're even using it for our clients. Um, so, you know, last week, for example, Darden restaurants who operate both low end and high end restaurants released their earnings and they talked about how like at Olive Garden, um, they're seeing more menu management, people being more careful with what they're ordering. They're seeing a little bit more of an earnings issue there as opposed to their upper end restaurants. Um, I think they own Capital Grill maybe, um, where they're not seeing that yet. But you know, the longer this goes, it's going to affect everybody to some extent. So uh, my hope is that, you know, this is largely a pandemic related issue. It seems that's what sort of jump started this problem. Um, and as we work through it, we won't be staring at 8% numbers maybe next year, but, uh, you know, we may be at a higher level. So just some comments. I'll weigh in if I can. There's also an, another thing that's really sort of unusual about the, the breakdown of inflation that we have seen in the last two years. And specifically, uh, corporate profits have actually made up 
um, more than half of, of the inflation that we've seen um, in the two years ending in uh, the uh, fourth quarter of 2021. That's pretty unusual. Um, labor costs by uh, comparison are, are comprising only about 8%. And that's sort of a reversal of what we've seen over the last 40 years. Usually wages make up a really significant share of uh, pressure to, to increase prices, about 62% over the, those uh, 40 years ending in 2019. Um, now we've kind of seen that flip. Um, and I think that that has some really major implications. One, on the pain that, that people are, are feeling as a result of this, workers are not having the same success that they have had historically in bargaining wages that are commensurate with that inflation. Um, and I think that it also has real impacts on what is going to comprise a successful policy response to the inflation that we're seeing today. You know, the, and, and, and I hope that we can talk more about this later, but uh, you know, the, the sort of standard policy response that we have to fight inflation works by slowing down and constraining the labor market. Uh, you know, I think that there are real concerns about uh, the, the impact that that's going to have on working people now, given that wages are not the driver of inflation right now, and wages, in fact, are, are constraining uh, inflation while corporate profits are much, much higher than we've seen in periods of high inflation before. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Michael, for that perspective, and, and Doug as well. I think I saw a Larry Summers quote last week or something like that, that unemployment's too low. Is anybody who want to respond? I think he said he was aiming to, to you know, ideally see unemployment around 5% to help with the current inflationary pressure. Uh, Jeff, did you want to respond to that? Sure. I, I, I was a big fan that uh, Larry appropriately identified the fact that this additional spending stimulus, and especially the extreme uh, easy monetary policy of the Federal Reserve was going to lead to inflation. He was dead right on that. I think he's, he's dead wrong on the need to, uh, as, as Michael was really alluding to, to solve this problem on the backs of labor. I don't, I don't think labor is a problem. Uh, labor didn't print $5 trillion into the monetary base like the Federal Reserve did. Uh, so so I, I think that, uh, you know, he said something to the effect of, hey, 10% unemployment for one year or 5% unemployment for five years, something like that. And, and in reality, what we need to do is get back to kind of a stable monetary environment at the end of the day, we're going to see some of these price pressures continue to rise. I believe there's some latent inflation that's still going to go. But we've had uh, the money supply, for instance, has been basically stagnant since February. Uh, and, and that's that's a, you know, a sharp drop off in the rate of growth. Now, again, we, it's, it's like that old image of the pig and the python passing through when you put that much money in the economy. So it's not clear to me and, and probably nor to any of the other advice how long this is going to take to really digest the economy, all this additional money that's now in there, because some of it's still on the sidelines, but it's not clear at all that there's some sort of Phillips curve trade-off as they thought historically in the Keynesian model that we need to have higher unemployment to deal with this problem. I agree with Michael completely that it's not being labor-driven at this point. Uh, I, I might say that labor prices are you know, rising rapidly in many, many markets. Uh, you know, you know, with this whole fight for 15, well, wow, that's in a long rearview mirror as, as most entry-level wages are now far in excess of that. So, so it's a complicated thing, but I, I certainly don't think that we need to go to high levels of employment uh, to, to solve this problem. Thank you, Jeff. Doug, did you raise your hand? Did you want to say something? Yeah, I, yeah it just seems to me in reference to labor, um, it seems that the pandemic sort of jump-started a focus on, on labor costs, um, you know, certainly as it affected the service sectors and uh, people on the front lines. And I'm curious, I'm not sure we're, we've seen the end of it. I think we're at the beginning of, of more labor pricing. I mean, 
if you look at the discrepancy between the C-suite and the average worker, it's, it's at a horrendously high levels. And it just seems as if labor has not really participated very well over the last 10 to 20 years in terms of wages. I, I think labor is positioned pretty well for pricing power as long as the economy doesn't um, slow down too much. So I think that's something we're going to have to keep an eye on. Thank you, Doug. Chris, I saw you raise your hand. Yeah, <clears throat> thanks, Nick. Um, for, for my members, uh, they're not the C-suite. They're not the, um, the corporate um, profit uh, folks that Michael and, and Jeff um, had um, referenced. Our members are, in fact, struggling with labor. It's a huge uh, impact on their business, and they have responded. You know, three quarters of our members have increased wages at least once and are looking to do so again. They have to in order to be competitive in the market. So, you know, to Doug's last point, uh, I think it is, um, we haven't seen the peak yet for, for employees and what they can earn. The challenge we have is with inflationary pressure, what does that do to business owners' ability to have, uh, particularly small business owners, uh, you know, they don't have significant reserves like their larger brethren do. So, you know, the, the, the pressures in small business are significantly greater than on their larger brethren. Michael, you want to go? Yeah, definitely. So, you know, in, in the last couple of years, we have seen wage growth. Um, you know, I, I look at the labor market uh, every year and do a big report about this in Labor on uh, Labor Day. Um, we've seen growth uh, over the last two years of about 4% uh, in real wages. That's through 2021. I think, to be frank, that the inflation that we're seeing now is going to wipe it out uh, for the, the mid, uh, median worker. Um, but we saw growth of about uh, 4% over two years. That's half of the entire growth that we've seen in wages all the way back since 1979. So wages were flat for a really long time. Workers finally started to get a, a bit of bargaining power vis-a-vis uh, -vis their employers. And I, I do think that uh, we have real concerns about what inflation is going to do to that. But we're talking about 4%, the most recent quarter, 4.5%. That's half the rate of inflation that we've seen. Meanwhile, back since 29, uh, 2016, we've seen corporate profits increase by 20%. 20%. Now, that's they're down a little bit from that. Um, but, but that was the, the most recent maximum that we've seen. Uh, we actually have wages uh, dampening the effect on inflation right now. If the Federal Reserve doesn't touch in interest rates again for the foreseeable future, we're going to see inflation decrease because wages are pulling it down. Frankly, people are constrained by their ability to continue to sustain higher prices because they're not being successful um, in, in bargaining with their employers for higher wages that keep up with that. Working people are being pushed further behind corporate profits are driving more than half of the inflation that we're seeing right now. Now, firms are also seeing higher costs. They're seeing labor uh, costs increase by about 8%. They're seeing non-labor input costs increase by about 38%. But firms are not simply responding to increased prices and then passing it on to consumers. They're actually taking advantage of the fact that people expect to see higher prices right now, and they're padding their profits with that. Thank you, Michael. If there aren't any responses, I, we're, we're, we have plenty of time to get into more of those. Jeff, did you want to go? Sure, sure. I don't know if you want to have alternative perspectives. So I, I agree with much of what Michael was saying. I, I don't think profits are a causal force for an inflation at all. Uh, inflation is, is I, I still will, will suggest, is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. It, it is absolutely true that, especially in the aftermath of the pandemic, uh, that, that when there's additional pricing pressures, that, that firms are able to, to get some relief 
uh, you know, one of the complaints we've had for years by most businesses is they have no pricing power, no pricing power because of the global competition. And, and that was really uh, re relaxed in the pandemic uh, because, because of all the supply chain challenges. If profits were the driver of inflation, well, we should have seen horrendous inflation for, for years now, right? We've had high profits for a while. Uh, what's unique about this particular inflation is precisely the fact that we spent added $7 trillion to our national debt of spending when there was not additional supply production coming online and the Fed monetized that. Yeah, there's lots of parties that are trying to, to clamor for their share, whether it be labor. I mean, we have, have uh, union negotiations on the dock right now that's contributing higher prices on the West Coast. Some corporations are trying to pass those on. We're, we're, we're seeing lots of effects, but the root cause, those are, are symptoms because the root cause is always and everywhere the Fed printing money. Go ahead, Doug. I, I have to agree with Jeff on this. I mean, as much as I have empathy for the average laborer, I don't see, I mean, I'm a small businessman also. I employ, you know, seven people. And um, this hasn't affected us a lot because we're a professional firm. We pay above average rates anyway. I mean, there are a lot of professional firms that do. Um, and a lot of tech-related firms, more highly specialized firms. But um, to say that profits drive inflation, that to me seems like a backwards argument. I mean, it's, it's, it's not that. You might say that the focus on profits could impact inflation. But I, from what I've been reading from Goldman Sachs and other sources, um, firms really are by and large, not taking advantage of this situation just to raise prices um, opportunistically. So I don't know, I maybe maybe in some industries or sectors that happens, but you know it's still the law of supply and demand. Um, economics works. So there's a disincentive to price yourself out of the market as well. Thank you, Doug. Michael, would you like to respond? For sure. Yeah, thank you. So, you know, I, I think um, to, to back up here, I think it's important to recognize that um, while neither profits nor wages, frankly, are the, the root cause of the inflation that we're seeing right now, the, this inflation was caused by COVID-19. It was caused by a global pandemic that disrupted supply chains at the same time that it changed people's con uh, consumption patterns away from buying services, and toward buying, buying more goods that were, um, whose production was delayed by uh, disruptions that the, the same pandemic caused to the supply chain. So that's the root cause. We, this is now being exacerbated by other things, and fr frankly, including uh, Russia's war on Ukraine. Um, so the root cause to, to this lies with COVID-19. Um, the breakdown in where the money is going, I mean, the, the inflation that folks experiences, uh, price increases, is the same as the revenue that firms uh, earn. And, and then the question becomes, where do they spend the money, right? 8% of it goes to wages, 38% of it goes to non-labor input costs. I'm talking about the increase, not the overall. And uh, more than 50%, I think it's at 54%, goes to increased profits. That's just the breakdown. This comes from the national in, uh, income and product accounts, right? So that's the breakdown. That's where the money is going. We know Profits are a tremendous part of this. We also know that this is unusual, that firms have not traditionally had the pricing power 
Um, you know, Jeff mentioned this, that, that they haven't had the, the power to be able to increase prices in this way. We know that people are tolerating it in a way that they have not previously, but where, where firms have exercised power uh, in the market previously uh, is in the labor market. And they they've, have had the power to really suppress wages. Um, right now, workers have more bargaining power to, uh, to, to bargain for higher wages, but unfortunately, that is not commensurate with the level of uh, inflation that we're seeing. Um, so the, you know, these are, are, are all really important factors. But the other thing that I think is really worth noting is all of the money that the federal government has pumped into the economy has been spent in the economy. Um, the, uh, the growth that we've seen uh, through this year is on track. It's within about a percentage point of what the Congressional Budget Office projected for this year back in 2016 before we could have anticipated COVID-19 uh, you know, causing the economic disruption that it has. So that's been priced in and it's, we've seen the growth that we expected to see. We have not seen enough growth um, that, that it should be driving the inflation uh, rate that we have right now. So that's not, the, that's not the cause either. We all understand you know, fundamentally that we had this huge disruption to our economy that played out in two different ways in the supply market, uh, in, the, in the supply side and the demand side both. Um, but the other thing that the, the money did that the federal government pumped into the economy was prevent us from having a catastrophic recession, right? We had, we lost uh, by April of 2020, 900,000 jobs in Ohio in about a month. Over the course of the entire pandemic, more than 2 million Ohioans lost their jobs and filed for unemployment compensation. So we had an historic uh, recession in terms of its depth, in terms of in impact on working people and their families. We've also had an historic recovery. Now that's been driven in part by the fact that uh, pandemic caused this. There were many people who, many businesses who once it was safe to return to work were able to do so. But also the historic response that we have had uh, from the federal government is an absolute contrast with, if we look at the great recession and the burden that the austerity policies, the government spending cuts put on that, it took us more than seven years to recover the jobs that we lost to the great recession we are moving three times faster now. This government spending has prevented an, econ an, excuse me, an economic catastrophe, a recession. So it's been really important that people have had the supports that they've had through this. We're dealing with, on, uh, with inflation that's higher than we'd wanna see, about six points higher. Um, but you know, I think that the, when we look at what the trade-off would be, do we, do we wanna see a, a protracted recession of historic proportions? Um, so that we can prevent high inflation? I, I think not. Go ahead, Jeff. I do want to, I want to, <laughs> I know this is a big debate. I know there are a lot of points that Michael just raised. Um, I'm going to go to you, Jeff, and then there's a question from the audience I'd like to take. So go ahead, Jeff, and respond. Just a quick response. I, I, I might have a different perspective than Michael on one aspect, but, but I could maybe agree that the Federal Reserve and maybe some of the government action in the initial aftermath of the uh, pandemic was necessary. But here's the problem and why we have this inflation day. Long after the recession was officially over, the Federal Reserve kept buying $120 billion per month. Even after we had rates of inflation greater than 5%, they kept it up. In fact, in March, when they raised interest rates that little baby step for the first time, the week before, they were still pumping additional money into it. It was the, the, the post recession recovery period, which had excessive, uh, very, very outrageous uh, money growth, which led to this problem. So we didn't necessarily need to overcome the problem that you're referring to, Michael, that, hey, we needed maybe some uh, uh, government action in the crisis. 
we're talking about they kept it going way too long. Thank you, thank you, Jeff. And we'll get back to this discussion because I know there's there's a lot to talk about there. But I do want to quickly go to a question from the audience, specifically around for those retirees on Social Security and Medicare. What do you and anyone can jump in here anticipate will be the inflationary effect on Social Security, uh, COLA, and the Medicare premium increase for next year? Anyone want to take that one? Well, I think that. Uh... Uh, what I read recently was Social Security this year uh, raised the cost of living adjustment around 5% or so. Um, not sure what it's going to do for this coming year, but if inflation stays around 8%, I mean, it's maybe going to be somewhere in that range, somewhere between those ranges. I don't know about Medicare premiums. I haven't read anything on that yet. Um, they don't typically increase much from year to year. Um, as far as I know, I haven't heard anything from clients talking about it, so I, I'm not sure about on the premium side. I don't think it's a big concern, but you know, one favorable uh, situation for retirees is that Social Security is adjusting somewhat uh, on the COLA side to help out. Although you know, for this year, it's not eight percent. Um, there's still a gap, but there is an adjustment there. Let's jump over to energy. Um, I'm sure a lot of folks were surprised to see how much higher their bills are going to go if they're served uh, in the Dayton region by AES. Um, so, Pat, could you talk about how this energy aggregation works, um, and you know who benefits? And also, is there can you really even save money at this point, uh, either through your town doing aggregation or by going on to the PUCO site and picking a another provider? Yeah, so aggregation, the way that works is it's first passed by ballot initiative that the, the residents of the community have to agree that they want to do an aggregation. Um, a lot of communities have passed those in the past but have never done anything with it. From there, if they do decide to act on it, the, the cities or municipalities will go out to bid um, for the entire community for both residential and small commercial customers to procure a price for them in the marketplace. So any customer who's not with another supplier then gets lumped into this. Um, and from there, the city will send out notifications saying, this is the supplier we chose, this is the period of time, and this is the price. Residents have the ability to opt out of that if they don't want to be part of that and can either stay on the standard service offer with AES Ohio or go out and choose their own supplier. As far as who benefits from that, it really just depends on when the, the aggregation was done compared to when the standard offer rates were done. Um, I know when, when City of Dayton came out with, with their aggregation, there were some initial you know, people who were like, wait a minute, I'm paying four and a half cents right now. Why do I want to go into this aggregation? And, and the city had had the foresight to go out and you know, procure rates, kind of seeing where the market was. And then when AES Ohio came out with their standard offer rates, all of a sudden the City of Dayton looked great. If anyone else had gone out right after that to actually try to do an aggregation for that same 12 month period, they would have actually gotten rates coming back higher than where AES Ohio was. Because as high as those rates were, immediately after that rates were even higher. They've kind of come back down a little bit. Um, so if you look to do maybe a two to three year aggregation, you could probably get a rate that might offer savings. But what you don't know is what that rate's gonna compare to, to you know, AES Ohio standard offer next year. 
So as a company, what we encourage people to do is actually to work with energy professionals and consultants who can help them navigate that. It's, it is a very difficult path. Instead of just taking a, a price at one point in time from an auction that the utility does or that a municipality does, it's, it's working with, you know, at the resident level, you know, a home energy consultant who can work with them, help them determine which what term length contract might be best for them. For a business, it's, it's timing the market to where it makes sense to lock something in, not letting the market dictate to you when you should lock that in. There's still a lot of buying opportunities further out into the market into you know years 24, 25, and 26 where markets are low so businesses can take advantage of those instead of you know waiting to see what happens then. Um, because more than likely as, as we move into the future, we'll see that same upward pressure on the markets. Um, so, yeah. Thank you, Pat. I'm gonna call on you again in just a second, but I'm gonna reintroduce all of our panelists to our audience for those who might've joined a little bit late. Um, thank you again for joining us for today's community conversation on how historically high inflation is affecting our region, you and your families. We're joined today by Pat Keeley, the director at CNI Sales for IGS Energy. Chris Ferruso, the Legislative Director for the National Federation of Independent Businesses in Ohio. Uh, Jeff, Professor uh, Heyman, Dean of the School of Business at Cedarville University. Michael Shields, the uh, researcher at Policy Matters Ohio. And Doug Kinsey, uh, the co-founder of Artifacts Financial. Uh, thank you again for taking time out of your busy days to share your expertise and knowledge with our audiences. Um, we're going to jump back into the program. I am Nick Kirkman, the Community Impact Editor for the Dayton Daily News, and I'm also joined by my co-host, Lynn Holsey. Um, so yeah, Pat, if you don't mind, I'm going to go back to you because we have dedicated quite a bit of coverage uh, to what has been a very confusing kind of energy market and energy questions are, are hot on the, the um, minds of a lot of folks. So I was going to, you know, for particularly for those folks that are looking to, you know, if they're not on the aggregation plan, if they're not locked into something like that. I've seen, you know, shopping for an energy supplier can be very confusing. Uh, there's a lot of options out there. What do the variable rates mean? So I was going to ask if you or anyone else too had advice for, for consumers on that process. Yeah, one thing I would encourage people to do is, is take their time, make sure they understand who they're looking to go into a contract with, what the, the terms of those contracts are. The, the way the energy market works in order to secure a, a rate into the future, those suppliers have to go out and actually hedge that energy and, you know, with either a financial swap or into the energy market with a generator to actually say, okay, I can serve this price into the future. So with that, if that market changes, if you leave early, sometimes there's termination fees and, and those can be significant um, for businesses or, or residential customers. So it, it's understanding what you're getting yourself into so that you don't put yourself into a position later. Uh, the other piece is, is making sure the product you're getting is what you think you're getting. And, and that's where working with someone reputable makes a lot of sense. You, you'll see a lot of introductory type offers out there where, hey, we'll sign you up and you can pay four cents. Well, if you're paying four cents for the first three months and all of a sudden that jumps to the 20 cents and, and, and twice the standard offer rate, you're not coming out ahead. And, and a lot of times because of the, the way you have to switch to find another supplier, by the time you find out, you're, you're stuck with that rate for three, maybe four months of paying that higher rate. And it's just working that the other piece is making sure that it's a financially stable company. Um, we've seen situations in Texas where there's bankruptcies after it. There's been 
you know, even aggregations here in Ohio where suppliers have gone bankrupt and then residents and, and businesses are left, you know, thinking they had something set for a period of time and, and they really don't. So just taking the time, due diligence, and, and just working with somebody reputable is the biggest piece of advice I would give people. One of the things I was wondering about is, you know, the AES went to the auction, they got the price, and my understanding is that's the price for a year. Is there any flexibility in the rules where AES could go out again when prices drop and get a different price, or, or are they also locked into that one year? Contract? They are locked into that one year um, just because they, they have to go out and actually procure that energy through that auction. And on the flip side, if if prices increased, AES couldn't come back and say, okay, we're gonna run other auctions so that we can raise prices. Uh, you know, Similar to the year before, AES was actually in a great position in the auction at, at the four and a half cent, was one of the lowest in the state. You, residents and, and customers wouldn't like it if all of a sudden they came back and said, well, we decided to redo this because the market went up. So you, you, you gotta take the good with the bad. Um, now, come next March, AES will run their next auction to procure the, the next portion of energy. So, you know, and, and there's been some things in the market that have caused them to do the way they did the auction. There were some unknowns. There's a piece of the energy called capacity uh, that was unknown due to some delays and FERC rulings and things like that. So they wanted to make sure what was bid on was certain. So that's kind of what put them in that position. Now, there's nothing that says a customer has to stay on that offer though. There, there isn't a minimum stay where they're locked in, you know, that that's just, they can go shop at any point in time. So if someone is there, I would suggest, you know, going out, PUCO has an Apple Staples website that, that gives different rates um, and start that process and, you know, looking to see what you can do to help lower those costs and, and kind of bring them in line. Thank you, Pat. Um, again, I, I think energy questions are on the minds of a lot of folks. So we appreciate the insight you've offered there. Um, I'm going to pivot to Chris for a little bit on a related subject, though, um, just to ask you, uh, what do you think of the idea of a gas tax, that gas tax holiday, either at the federal or at the state level? And what about the potential the gas stations might not pass on those savings to consumers? Yeah, uh, Nick, thanks for the question. I, I, I'm not, I, I'm not uh, an expert on the second half of that question, but let me tell you, the idea of a, a gas tax holiday certainly provides some uh, short-term uh, money back in the pockets of not only individuals uh, and their families, but also businesses, particularly uh, depending upon what industry you're in. You know, for those who are operating here in Ohio, as you know, we have a bifurcated uh, motor fuel tax that was uh, increased in the last transportation budget in 2019. So those folks who are operating uh, heavier pieces of uh, uh, vehicles that, that require diesel fuel, uh, their, their burden's a little bit greater. So, um, you know, the idea uh, you know, it, it is a top 15 concern for our members. And in fact, um, about 40% of uh, our Ohio members said that the increased cost of fuel is a significant, having a significant impact on their business. So uh, caution against being penny wise and pound foolish, however, because, you know, we all want good roads and bridges. And so those very folks who are operating that heavy machinery uh, cost a lot of money to maintain those vehicles. And if, you know, the, the roads and bridges aren't up to par, uh, it could do some damage there. But to answer your question, the short-term relief would probably be welcome, uh, both by businesses, our, my members, as well as um, uh, folks who are filling their gas tank every day. Thank you, Chris. Jeff, did you want to hop in? 
Sure. Uh, well, I appreciate the, uh, the idea that the political class is going to try to help us out with some of this problem. I think this is the wrong answer, unfortunately. Uh, what we have here, the, the overarching thing with any kind of inflationary problem is too much demand relative to supply, such that as painful as these high gas prices are, that forces us to curtail our demand. If we lower the gas price further, that's going to bring the demand back up. When the real issue is how do you get supply up? That's the real overarching problem. When you've got a, a demand supply imbalance, the, the solution is not to exacerbate that imbalance. It's to work on the other side of that equation. So I think that this is a short-term palliative, which would not do anything for the longer term and will lead to actually higher inflation, unfortunately. Uh, so let's work on the supply side. Go ahead, Lynn. So we talked a little bit earlier about the labor market. Um, Michael, what is the impact of these federal efforts to constrain inflation? You know, the higher interest rates and the um, backing off of the buying of assets. What does that actually do to the labor market? Thanks, Lynn. Yeah, you know, um, one of the concerns that I have um, with uh, um, the, the context that we're in right now is, you know, obviously, um, inflation is high. Uh, it's about six and a half points higher than uh, the Fed's target rate, um, the, the Federal Reserve's rate. Um, and certainly that's having an impact on people's bottom lines. It's uh, uh, particularly uh, is creating hardships um, for folks to, to cover the, the cost of basic needs. So I think that policymakers are rightly focused on inflation as a, a key concern. But I, I uh, do have concerns that um, you know, the, the main policy tool that we have, at least that we've used uh, for, for the last many decades uh, to uh, reduce inflation is that the Federal Reserve will um, adjust interest rates, engineer it really, an interest rate um, that is designed to be higher or lower um, to make it more or less costly, um, one, to do business, and then also um, for consumers to buy um, bigger purchases, the kinds of things that you finance. Um, you know, the, the main tool that we have is to, frankly, right now in this context, to raise interest rates. The Fed has been uh, moving to do that already. Um, but I, I think that the concern is that um, the way that that actually works to reduce inflation is through the labor market, right? And it, it works by um, reducing demand um, for, frankly, for uh, workers um, and, and thereby um, when uh, we have fewer job opportunities for folks, um, it, it push, pushes down um, people's ability to bargain for higher wages, right? So that's the, the sort of mechanism um, through which this works. And I think the concern there is that, it, you know, as we talked about earlier, wages are not the primary driver of inflation. We know they're not the cause, uh, nor are corporate profits the, the core cause. We know that's COVID-19. We know that right now uh, profits are the biggest um, factor that, that are, that's making up uh, price increases. The next biggest is non-labor costs. Finally, labor costs are making up about 8% of that. So we know that workers already are not successfully bargaining for higher wages. If we implement a policy um, that's designed to push down folks' ability to, to bargain for higher wages, then we're directing the cost of uh, controlling inflation to working people who, quite frankly, are already the ones who are paying those costs. We know they're paying those costs because the wages that uh, we've seen increase about 4% are only half the rate of um, inflation. So folks are bearing the cost of that already. And uh, I, I think that the real risk, even greater risk, is um, 
we're going to slow down uh, if if we pursue an aggressive um, policy to, to increase in interest rates. We'll slow down hiring. We could potentially even reverse it. We have not recovered fully from uh, COVID-19. Now, the rate of recovery that we've had so far has been really rapid. Um, I, I attribute that largely to um, the money, fiscal stimulus money that the federal government has pumped into the economy, has sent to families directly, has sent to folks who were unemployed. Uh, again, we said 2 million people in Ohio filed for uh, unemployment during COVID-19. Um, so it would have been an absolute catastrophe if folks had not had access to the resources that they needed in order to cover the basics during that. Um, but the, the, the concern now is uh, if we slow down hiring, um, we have still yet to fully recover. We've got uh, 135,000 jobs still missing from Ohio um, compared with February 2019, our last month before uh, COVID-19. Uh, so we want to be really cautious about how we move forward in ways that um, could, could direct the cost of controlling inflation to working people. Um, and I think that we frankly need to get a bit more creative about the kinds of responses that we consider. Uh, you know, one thing that we could do is um, deeply increase uh, the, the resources that we invest at the, both the, the federal and state level, frankly, we could do this. Um, in childcare. Um, we know, for instance, that many people have not yet been able to return to the labor market, in particular, mothers who don't have adequate access to childcare or can't afford it, have uh, not been able to return to work or are still uh, stuck working part-time jobs when they would like to work full-time. Uh, this is an investment um, that would work in sort of the same way, right? If it would increase the labor supply, um, but without, um, you know, if, if we go a route where uh, we're trying to slow down the economy, um, then what that does is destroy jobs, right? Um, so rather than reduce the number of jobs available to the workforce that we have right now, one thing that we could do by making investments in people is to increase the number of folks who are available to come to work, people who want to work, but can't because they don't have the, the resources that they need to do it right now. There are a lot of things that we could do like this, um, you know, one thing, and, and frankly, this is a little bit of a different tack, but, uh, you know, I, I've talked already a lot about how um, corporate profits are making up a large share of this inflation um, right now, and, and that that's pretty unusual in terms of history. Um, we could implement more targeted policies that would direct the cost of uh, reining in inflation to the economic actors, the, the firms, um, then frankly, I think it's generally big firms for being full disclosure, um, that, uh, that are mostly driving this, right? Um, we could do that in the form of an excess profits tax. So there are things that we could do. I think that the bottom line is we need to be really thoughtful about, yes, we've got to rein in inflation. One thing that we know already is that uh, wages are constraining inflation because folks are not uh, keeping up. Wage growth is not keeping up with inflation and, and people are gonna reach a limit um, in terms of how much more they're able uh, how, how much higher prices are able to sustain. So that's already happening. Um, but the other things that we really need to be thoughtful about are what are the tools that we have? And frankly, they might be some new tools that we haven't used or haven't used a lot before um, that will rein in inflation, but do it in a way that directs the cost to the economic actors who are actually driving this and who frankly can afford to pay um, rather than directing the cost to working people who are the ones bearing the cost of this already. Doug, yeah, do you want to weigh in on that? Uh, it seems to me that um, the situation we're in is largely a supply problem. Um, it's it's really not 
so much even on the demand side. Supply can't keep up with demand. And it's certainly been exacerbated by the Ukraine situation. That's affected supply of agriculturals. It's affecting supply of fertilizer. Um, there are farmers who are concerned about if they can even get fertilizer next year. Um, interest rates, unfortunately, are kind of a blunt tool. And it's really not a, you know, it's just an, an effort to slow down demand. Um, I see a lot of risk to slowing down the economy too much. I think additional taxes would be a big mistake um, on corporations at this point or individuals, of course. Um, but if you had a magic wand, I mean, you'd solve the supply problems. Um, I talked to a car dealer last week. I was curious about, uh, this is an American car dealer. They dealt in American cars. And um, I said, so how are things at the dealership? Yeah, I mean, how are sales? And new cars predominantly. But um, he said that, um, you know, for uh, people who have been loyal customers, um, we, we are willing to possibly discount from sticker a little bit, but if you've never dealt with us before, you're a new customer, we're, we're selling cars for full sticker prices. So we're not really going above, above that, but we're not making, you know, a lot of efforts to discount our cars. We don't, we can't. And he said, the problem is we don't have enough cars. I mean, they, I think he said they had 40 cars on the lot. Um, so he said, things would be a lot better if we had more cars. I said, well, why is that? Semiconductors, chips. We can't get the chips for the cars. Um, there's just not enough production. I mean, that's just one example. One example of this. Um, you know, if you look at the BLS statistics, new car prices are up about 13% from last year. Used car prices are up about 16%. So, I mean, that's just one sector of the economy. It's a pretty important sector. Um, but in my opinion, it's this this thing is really supply driven, and um, it, once that situation gets resolved, I mean, China has shut down multiple times. Um, the world needs to normalize in terms of supply. Um, and I guess if you had a magic wand, you'd also solve the Ukraine problem. But uh, until all that happens, um, you know, it's a situation we might have to live with. Sure. Thank you, Doug. And, uh, you know, maybe the supply of magic wands is what we need to address first, and then we can <laughs> address a lot of problems. I'm sorry, Pat, you raised your hand. Would you like to go? Yeah, I was going to say, you know, the supply is another issue that's impacting the energy piece as well. So if you go back three weeks ago, natural gas prices were quickly approaching nine, possibly $10 a decatherm. And then there was an explosion at a LNG uh, export terminal in Houston, Texas, that all of a sudden, added two BCS of natural gas into the US supply because it couldn't be exported to Europe to, to help with some of the constraints caused by the Ukraine conflict. Um, and all of a sudden we saw prices of natural gas for the next 12 months drop 25, 30%. Um, and it was purely just injecting that much supply through the remainder of the year that it wouldn't have been there otherwise. I mean, so it just shows that that, that supply piece is across all aspects of the market it being impacted right now. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you, Pat. Um, I'm going to back up just a little bit to, to focus again on, on some of the things we've talked about regarding the overall economy, and which, you know, appears strong by a number of indicators, including low unemployment and employment in nearing its pre-pandemic levels. 
Um, how optimistic are you, Jeff, uh, in the overall strength of the economy? And I know Doug also mentioned, you know, this is, I, I think there's consensus that COVID is the, the chief concern here. So as we get further out of the worst parts of the pandemic, what, what does that recovery look like and how confident are you? Well, just one, one little caveat. I, I would say our response to COVID is the driver, not necessarily COVID itself, uh, although it clearly was a big part of it. Nevertheless, in answer to your question, uh, you know, a lot of people are making the case, look, hey, unemployment's very, very low. This is a great, strong economy. The problem is unemployment's a lagging indicator. Uh, typically, we'll see after, whenever that, the, the, the mysterious, when we talk about magic wands, talk about the magic tea leaves that the National Bureau of Economic Research does to declare recessions. But whenever they declare that there's an actual recession, we may already be in one by the time they declare it. And, oh, yeah, by the way, usually out of it by the time they declare it. Uh, we'll often find the unemployment drops after the uh, recession has officially started because it lags behind. So, so uh, I'm, I'm not so sure that it's as strong as people think. Obviously, uh, we've had slow growth, uh, negative growth the last quarter. People are expecting negative or very slow growth this quarter. Uh, we're, we're, we've seen monetary ad additional money in the economy basically flat for four months. So, so I think that there's a, a possibility. I, I'm a strong uh, believer that we're probably going to have a recession within uh, six to nine months. It's not been helped. All the internal things are also not helped by the global implication of what's going on in China. It's not just their Shanghai uh, shutdown for, uh, for COVID, uh, their zero COVID policy. It's also their real estate bubble has burst over there, which is having major problems in their financial sector. So there are a lot of things that are negative. We've mentioned Ukraine. Uh, so, you know, back to the overarching thing, we've talked about supply chain problems, but supply and production is always the problem. How do we get production increased. You know, our labor force participation rate is lower than it was when we started this. How do we get more labor in the workforce? I think it's it's more than just uh, childcare issues, for instance. Those are some of the things we need to be thinking about. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, Chris, did you want to weigh in? Yeah, uh, thanks, Nick. You, you know, you asked about optimism. And one of the things we do at NFIB is survey our members on a monthly basis. And we have what's called our optimism index. And it measures the the confidence our members, small business owners, the entrepreneurs, not only in Ohio, but across the country have with respect to uh, their comfort level and doing the things you want businesses to do, expand, make new purchases, hire new folks. Uh, we're at um, historic lows for optimism. Our members are, and this is 48 years of data. So we're talking nearly half a century. Our members' optimism is the lowest it's ever been. And that's really concerning because small business, at least in my view, uh, really drives local communities, uh, not only in Dayton, but across Ohio, across the country. And when you have small business owners have a lack of confidence and a lack of optimism, uh, there's going to be negative repercussions for them. That means that they're going to not do those uh, investments they normally would make. And so, uh, you know, we're very concerned with the numbers uh, we're seeing uh, right now with respect to our members' optimism. So, uh, and, you know, you couple that with the fact that, uh, uh, we have the lowest reading ever, again, in 48 years of our members who think that uh, general business conditions are going to improve within the next six months. So, you know, through the end of this year, uh, they are feeling like things are not going to not only just level off, but get worse. And, that, and that's certainly concerning. When the Fed raises the interest rates uh, and slows the economy, that's where your concern about the recession comes in. And I know that the the big term is um, soft landing, you know, to try and do it just enough to control inflation, but not enough to, to slow the economy to the point of recession. Um, Jeff, you already kind of addressed that. How about uh, the others of you? What are your thoughts about the danger of a recession and when, when would it happen? 
Well, Lynn, I'll, t I'll take a shot at that. Uh, you know, again, I'll go back to what I just said about our members' optimism uh, being in kind of in the tank. Uh, you know, what are they going to do and how are they going to react? You know, it is kind of an anomaly, and I appreciate Jeff pointing out that uh, unemployment is a lagging indicator, but, uh, you know, our members still are struggling to fill open positions, but their costs have gone up. And so, you know, they're, they're turning to things like uh, automation, like uh, reducing hours, uh, the, the business owners spending more time doing the day-to-day -day tasks uh, in their individual operations. And so um, it, it's, it's concerning about, again, what our next six months looks like. Uh, you know, our, our members are not flush with cash necessarily. A lot of them um, suffered greatly as a result of uh, the pandemic and really government's um, immediate response to shuttering businesses. A lot of our members, unfortunately, uh, had their businesses closed, and so they're still trying to recover from that. So yeah, I think it's it's going to be a multitude of things that, that you know, businesses will react as they need to, uh, and hopefully that doesn't result in our members deciding those vacant positions they have, uh, they're just not going to fill and, and in fact, may go the opposite direction and say, look, uh, we just don't have revenue coming in the door. Uh, I'm sorry, but I'm going to have to, um, you know, separate employment. Thank you, Chris. Did anyone else want to weigh in on that specifically? And maybe just, I know a lot of folks are kind of thinking the big question here of, you know, when, when, are, when are we going to get out of this? Is this going to get better? Is this going to get worse? Um, any other responses there? Well, one other, I'm sorry, Michael, one other quick comment, but really the difficulty in this so-called soft landing is the Fed has never engineered a soft landing from an inflation per, uh, level that we are at today. The, the last previous time when, when the maestro, Alan Greenspan, raised rates in 1994, we did not start from this level. That's why people are very skeptical that we'll be able to engineer that. Go ahead, Michael. Sure. Yeah. And, and uh, I just wanted to say I, I share the concerns that other have, others have mentioned that um, we could be uh, not only uh, heading for a recession, but but actually that our policymakers could be driving this uh, toward a recession. Um, that is my concern with um, a uh, Federal Reserve policy that uh, that could raise interest rates too rapidly. Um, you know, I've mentioned already some alternative policy uh, solutions that would be more targeted. Um, you know, we, we already have talked about uh, making deep investments in uh, childcare and people so that more uh, working moms can uh, get back to, to work. Um, talked about uh, how uh, firms have, have really driven a lot of the, the price increases that we've seen and uh, that a, uh, an excess profits tax would, would really address that. Um, but also, you know, we, we already have um, some mechanisms in place that are slowing down uh, the inflation rate um, that we, I, I think, otherwise would see. Um, particularly, wages are, are, are a lagging force that are, are slowing that. Um, so I'm just, you know, really hopeful that our policymakers will be cognizant of that um, when they're choosing the policy solution that we have going forward. Because I think that, um, you know, this is uh, look, recessions are not the weather; they are uh, the the result of economic policy decisions. So I'm, I'm uh, you know, just very hopeful that. Uh, our uh, policymakers are, are thoughtful and cautious about uh, how they respond to inflation. Go ahead, Chris. Nick, just briefly, I, I would suggest that uh, one, uh, we're not picking up from a large portion of our members of childcare as an issue. It may be unique to certain industries or certain sizes of business. I would submit to you that small businesses do uh, what they need to do to keep their employees uh, in the workplace. Uh, they know their employees, their spouses, their children, they sponsor the little league teams. And I would also add that, um, 
increasing taxes at a time when inflation and costs are through the roof would uh, only exacerbate the problem. Um, small businesses cannot stomach that or weather that, and uh, you will just um, make things even worse for them. Thank you, Chris. I'm going to move. I'm going to pivot a little bit to Doug to talk about you know understanding that there is uh, maybe more more pain ahead and you in your in your day-to-day -day life get to address some of this with individual consumers. Um, what would be your advice to consumers on how to deal with inflation with potentially an upcoming recession with potentially bad news? Uh, what would be your advice to consumers? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, and it's gonna be, the answer is gonna be dependent on, you know, where someone is in their life cycle, uh, whether in their early growth years, um, whether they're closer to retirement, uh, how much of their budget is dependent on uh, non-discretionary items. Um, so, I mean, in general, you know, we always encourage people to look at their household like a corporation. I mean, look at your balance sheet, look at your assets and your liabilities, look at your income statement, your, where you're spending your money. Um, for people that are very sensitive to this, which tend to be people on fixed incomes, retirees, uh, people close to retirement, um, you know, you, you take a look at expenditures maybe where you've got some freedom to adjust you know first of all and look at replacements look at you know maybe um changing your shopping habits a little bit to conserve if you need to conserve um but it's it's kind of a two-pronged issue for for a lot of people i mean you've got the the asset side and then you've got your expense side and unfortunately in this environment um we've got a situation where you know, traditional 60-40 investment portfolio, that's not performing right now either. And you've got, you know, 60% stocks, 40% bonds. That's a very commonly used allocation um, for people, particularly when they get closer to retirement. Bonds are not performing. They've actually lost value. They've lost value this year, largely because of interest rate increases. Um, stocks haven't been performing. Um, so it, it puts a squeeze on them a little bit. Um, you know, people who need to live off of income from their portfolios. So on the portfolio side of the equation, um, you know, our firm has used some hedged equity products since before the pandemic. We kind of felt like the market was kind of at a peak then. Um, and so there are vehicles out there they can use to limit downside risk. They can look at other things such as commodities, commodities in their portfolios, real estate. Um, so maybe it's time to take a look at the portfolio if we have sustained 8% inflation, there's there's practically no portfolio that's balanced in any way that can keep up with that. I mean, that's it, gonna be an issue. Um, but over extended periods of time, I've seen some research lately that some very scholarly people have done rolling periods, 20 year periods. There's practically never been a time in history where um, the portfolio hasn't been able to achieve uh, in goals, even in situations like this, if you keep it fairly balanced. So don't don't panic. I mean, we're getting a lot of frightening news today, but do pay attention to, you know, how you're investing and really how you're spending your money um, and to the degree that you can, can economize um, oh, interest rates too. You know, it's been mentioned interest rates. If you have adjustable debt, you know, credit cards, that sort of thing, this may be a great time to pay attention to those items. Um, hopefully, uh, you've refinanced your mortgage by now and you've got a, a lower interest rate. So that's a good thing. Um, 
but pay attention to adjustable rate debt, pay attention to maybe frivolous expenditures, maybe some expenditures, maybe take two trips this year instead of three. Um, you know, airline airline fares are up 38% year over year. That's obviously maybe an area to pay attention to. Um, so, I mean, just, you know, pay attention to maybe areas of the inflation uh, of inflation that are high, more highly impacted and see if you can economize in those areas. I mean, so those are just some thoughts. But on the business side, uh, Chris, what can businesses do, kind of concrete things to cut back and cope with inflation? Yeah, you know, uh, Lynn, it's some of the things I touched on. It's, you know, um, not making those those expenditures they had planned for. I, you know, most businesses uh, have, you know, three, five, maybe even 10-year plans. Uh, certainly those are a little bit more established. You know, it's maybe putting on hold some of the things they were planning to do. Um, you know, it's it's cutting back on, again, filling vacancies and open positions. It may be paring back um, the uh, increased wages they had been offering just because if revenue is not coming in, they can't afford it. I mean, the reality is the cost of goods for my members is through the roof. Uh, you know, their number one concern right now is inflation. You know, and we've been, like I said, we've been serving our members for 50 years. For the past 40, it's been cost of health insurance. And so that's been, you know, that leapfrog or by inflation and supply chain issues. So, um, you know, they're going to do things to keep their businesses whole and in place. And so again, it's not doing the spending and outlays they normally would do. And again, uh, unfortunately, possibly uh, pairing back on hiring. And Thank you. Arlen, I, I would say that it's not gonna be the same for larger businesses as well who may have those cash reserves that, that will help them uh, better weather the storm, so to speak. Sorry, Nick. No, no problem at all. Uh, we're out of time, but Michael, if you wanna give a really quick, I, you jumped in there, do you have a, a second? Yeah, just real quick on equity and, and you know, thinking about um, retirees in, in particular, you know, um, look, 89% of the equities owned in the United States last year were owned by 10% of the people, right? Most working people get, working age people get most or all of their income from wages. Most retirees are getting that income from Social Security. So, uh, you know, I, look, I'm not really thinking about uh, folks who are deciding between taking two or three vacations this year. I'm talking, I'm thinking about folks who are trying to buy groceries. You know, maybe what we need to do is really uh, deepen the investments that we're making in people, uh, including uh, investing in adequately in Social Security. Uh, we could do that by getting rid of the income cap uh, uh, below which we, uh, or I'm uh, sorry, above which we uh, tax Social Security. So I think, uh, you know, let's think about equity when we're thinking about uh, how we solve these problems and let's make sure that the costs fall on the people who are powerful economic actors and can afford to pay for them, not on working people who are trying to get by. Thank you, Michael. And thank you to all of our panelists today. Uh, we really appreciate your time. We are now just a little bit over our time. So thank you for joining us for today's community conversation on historically high inflation and how it affects you. I really do appreciate everybody tuning in today. Um, I'm Nick Herkman, the Community Impact Editor for the Dane Daily News, and we'll see you next month. You can read a shortened transcript of this conversation on DaytonDailyNews.com ideas voices. I'm your host, Nick Herkman. Join me next time as we talk to community leaders on topics important to the Dayton region. 